Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. All right. I am really excited to have uh, Dr. Alan Rinsel here, um, Rinsel here with me on the podcast. And um, Alan, you and I have, have been having a series of really dynamic, interesting conversations over the last couple of months. And I think we figured, why don't we... Uh, why don't we do one? Why don't we record one? Because this is sort of the fascinating leading edge of both of our grappling with questions around carbon markets. So I'm totally. super amped. I'm I'm excited to dig in. And um, you want to just say hi to the audience and maybe give a brief introduction to yourself before we dive in? Yeah, totally. Really, uh, really happy to be here and, and talk to you. We we have been having some some awesome sort of conversations and thoughts over uh, the the past several months, like you said. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm Alan. I'm the team lead for Filecoin Green, which is a project aiming to verifiably decarbonize Filecoin itself, the decentralized storage network, and to build information systems to allow the greenhouse gas protocol to be built into Web3. So like, can we build systems to allow us to make strong verifiability claims and have the data available to back up those claims to a much higher standard than existing protocols and existing carbon markets, for example. Um, so yeah, really happy to to dig into a lot of these questions. Awesome. And do you, where are you sourcing inspiration from? Like, who do you think is doing it well or almost well enough that you're looking at what they've done and thinking, okay, there's some people to learn from? Yeah. Totally. I mean, I get a I get a lot of inspiration from the the World Resources Institute, honestly, and how they've tried to go about building the GHGP in a way that is really rigorous, right? And lays out like here are all of the accounting options that you have, and here is how we should be thinking about these these sorts of environmental claims. Um, that's one. I get a lot of inspiration from Watt Time and the the folks in that area looking at electricity, um, trying to understand how we can ingest the information from power grids around the world to understand in, in sort of real time, what are the emissions due to our electricity use, right? Because I think that's a place where people have been applying a lot of really rigorous thinking and tools to connecting some sort of environmental claim, which is here's my my emissions due to electricity with data that's coming from power grids in real time. And I, I get a lot of inspiration, honestly, from Regen and from folks in the refi space that are doing a really good job pushing DMRV and going beyond, I think, what we have in a lot of existing offset markets in which, you know, maybe we have a methodology and we have data that is sometimes available and sometimes uh, difficult to take home through and actually understand when you have an offset, what does that offset actually mean, right? And I, I, I get a lot of inspiration from projects like Regen, um, projects like Gain Forest, um, Open Forest Protocol, other folks in the space who are really pushing the envelope, trying to take some sort of environmental asset and not just make claims about the amount of carbon either you know uh, removed or you know, in, in other cases, uh, uh, like sequestered or avoided, um, but also allow you to understand um, in sort of an ongoing way, what does the um, carbon corresponding to that offset look like, right? Can you like take data from a bunch of different sources and allow you to to back up this this claim that you're making? 
Cool. Thank you. That's super helpful. And I was just going to say, oh, WRI, um, uh, they're not my favorite. Um, after they wrote that really horrible article about soil carbon, which was incredibly on very shaky ground. And I believe that they got funded to publish that by other my apocryphal belief, and don't take this necessary. This is a belief, not a um, and, and a rumor. Is that they got funded from like forest carbon people to write a hit piece about soil carbon uh, based on, and it was pretty poor. There was some nice. Uh, there were there were some nice rebuttal articles, <laughs> right? That, that, that I thought cleared things up. Although I don't think so. Anyway, I'm. Um, and and I don't keep track. I don't keep yeah. detailed track of their larger body of work. I just know that didn't put them in my good graces. <laughs> yeah, no, hundred percent. And I I don't I don't like subscribe to you know what they're saying about soil carbon, right? Or like the the exact guidance that they're making in every single case, right? What I really appreciate is like the rigor that they bring to this process and saying, okay, if we're going to build tools that are actually going to have a chance of working across the entire economy. Let's like go and you know set some standards um, that you actually like have a that that like have a chance of, of taking the type of data that we need and making that interoperable from like sector to sector and just setting guardrails around when you are making these types of claims. You know whether that's like the GHGP or like the science based targets initiative. Um, how should you go about making those claims? And what do you think about initiatives like the Oxford Offsetting Initiative? And maybe also while we're at it, how are you parsing some of the new, uh, the the B, B0 and Silvera? And there's a couple of yep. them out there that are sort of doing kind of audit and third party ratings of credits. Is this useful? Is this is this static? Is it going in a good direction? You know, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you're parsing all of that information ecosystem. Yeah, 100%. I think that that type of work is really useful, right? And we need, and you know, other examples like the, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Council, like that kind of thing. Like, we we definitely need better standards for distinguishing between high quality and low quality offsets, right? Because like the enemy here is a ton just being a ton. And we need to, to move to a world in which we take rich data sets associated with all of these different carbon offsets. And we're able to map all of that data to some claim in a way that is far more transparent than what we have now, right? So it's like the, the forces that are pushing toward commoditization of carbon in which every ton is fungible with every other ton are a problem, right? And the forces pushing in the other direction of allowing us to sort of disaggregate carbon offsets and say, okay, you know, this ton has these characteristics. And like, ideally, this ton relates to, you know, um, forestry work in some like specific geography. Those are, those are really positive, right? Because like, that's what you need in order to do a good job of actually making claims, right? Sustainability claims for your organization that are like really going to contribute to both decarbonizing the atmosphere and also having all of these extra co-benefits like associated with other planetary boundaries other than CO2 emissions, right? So, you know, I think that's I think that's really 
positive. I think like that work itself is very fragmented. And I think one of the things that we have the opportunity to do in Web3 is bring in a scientific consensus and bring in different different stakeholders who each have information to bring to the table about um, the quality of different types of offsets and allow them to debate some of this in a transparent way, right? So like the, the projects I really like to see are less, we went and formed this third-party organization and we went through some sort of closed process and here are the recommendations that we saw coming out of it. And the projects that I think are a lot more interesting to me are here is a sort of ongoing public discourse that we set up in order to rate these offsets, take in new information, and continually update our recommendations over time. Yeah, cool. Well, I think, you know, sort of pulling out a couple of the things that you've said, um, I'm definitely in heated agreement that the decommodification of carbon is really the appropriate pathway here. Um, you know, this tension between fungibility and non-fungibility, you know, li liquidity and uniqueness, I think is a really, you know, obviously we also need to have tools to aggregate and fungify responsibly. And, th and there's going to be sort of like filter choices at different levels of liquidity. And I think what's important for us to all understand is that at those different liquidity moments, when we choose to make something the same as something else out of expedience sake, right? There are, will be trade-offs. And so therefore at each of those moments, there actually needs to be a transparent process in which people can understand what decision was made, why it was made and how it could be made differently, <laughs> right? So it's, it's interesting because there's like this nested governance challenge around GHG accounting because it's a public good, right? Or a public negative. And we have to have a coordination apparatus to determine the price mechanisms. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you talk about is like, th there are all of these different groups who are thinking about and have processes running to research and development frameworks for thinking about both how to develop a a unit responsibly that represents carbon in a unique circumstance, but also how to value that for different stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a couple of things you hit on there, I think are, are really important, right? One, like we do need to aggregate and fungify in some situations because that's how you're going to get to scale, right? And we can do a lot to try and make the data available so you can evaluate these claims like either as a person or as a smart contract and try to say okay i'm going to buy these offsets and not these other offsets because this methodology is more complete or is higher scored or whatever those parameters are right and so i think that's that's one of the big barriers is in a lot of systems I'm not talking about regen, but in, in you know many systems, right? For offsets, we don't um, 
we don't actually even just have access to the data that we need in order to make those determinations, right? We know the number of tons. We may know the the serial number. We may know the the methodology um, being used, but we don't have like the underlying data describing like what does this offset actually represent. And we need to just get that data there in the first place, right? So that we're able to go back and actually like assess. Okay, we we claim we we bought an offset or we did buy an offset, we claim this certain thing about the world, which is that carbon is being removed or avoided or sequestered based on that offset. What does that actually mean? And then I think another of the the pieces that you brought in, and one of the reasons this is this is just such a, a rich and interesting and exciting area for innovation is that we don't have all the answers as to when you take some action, what does that actually do to the atmosphere? Or what does that actually do over you know some time scale to the local environment right and so i think like the ability of web3 to act as a coordination mechanism in which you're bringing local people who may be directly affected by a project and they know things that you know some some financier in another country isn't necessarily going to know um you bring in their expertise about what works in this particular context right and then you bring in knowledge from scientists who have studied similar systems over time and um, their understanding of some methodology is going to evolve as they as they continue to to study it right and like create some sort of coordination mechanism where like these these sources of knowledge sort of mix in a way that is legible on chain and unlocks financing to to pour in and and do good local environmental work and work that's good for the the global uh atmosphere um i think that's that's kind of where the the magic happens right and i think that's the fact that non web3 systems like traditional systems are very slow to actually like crank through those types of stakeholder engagement processes. But in Web3, we have the opportunity to take a lot of that and make it transparent, make it legible and make it computable, or at least some parts of it computable. Um, I think like that's where we really have a, a huge amount of opportunity to, to accelerate decarbonization um, using these sorts of tools. So there's a whole rabbit hole they want to go down with you. But before we go, I want you to expand on what you mean by Web3 can make certain important things computable. How is computation and the ability to compute um, going to change the the way that these accounting systems uh, inter interact with our economy or business logic or policy? What does computation uniquely bring? Why is it an important part of what Web3 is making possible? Yeah. So one avenue into this is thinking about what fiat money allows you to do versus what computable money in Web3 allows you to do. And so if you are imagining the economy as a system that's trying to trying to model the external world, right? And like set up an incentive, a set of incentive structures in order to make certain things happen in that external world, right? the the economy itself sort of functions as this like both computation and decision making mechanism right and so what i mean by that is you 
assign a value to some asset. So you assign a value to a plot of land. And then you assign a value to another asset, which is like some other plot of land. And so the what fiat money knows how to do is to add and subtract. So you can say, okay, I can buy plot A or I can buy plot B. The total cost for those two plots of land is A plus B, right? And so like fiat money knows how to do certain things. But if you want to set up incentive structures that are actually going to allow you to incentivize the right types of activity in the external world, that activity has to be like legible to your computational system. So money itself, you know, knows how to how to take the value of plot of line A, plot of line B, add them together, you get A plus B. It doesn't know how to figure out what the ecological value of those plots of land are separately from the the like exchange value of those plots of land, right? And so the way that we try to address this is to layer on this extra level of accounting on top of fiat money. So if you are trying to incentivize people to um, you know, donate land to an ecological project, right? You can separately in some probably set of Excel sheets, uh, optimistically in, in some, uh, you know, more like comprehensive platforms. So you're not just emailing Excel sheets to a bunch of people. Um, you can try to figure out what the benefit of those plots of land would be to a natural ecosystem, right? But that's not built into the way that you're actually able to transact. You can't attach it to the title or the money that is related to how the transaction takes place. You could talk about it. You could make a video about it. You could put a PDF together. You could make a spreadsheet and you could build some consensus that it's more valuable, but it's it's more of a sales exercise than it is sort of an internalizing of some cost or benefit associated to a specific attribute. Yeah, exactly. And so that sales exercise takes a lot of time is sort of the the critical piece of that. And maybe maybe it's a business exercise. Like maybe maybe you're trying to really evaluate and understand like what are the externalities positive or negative of what I'm trying to do. But it takes you a long time and then you make the transaction after you've gone through all of that accounting. That that transaction required all of this extra manual work before you actually like make the transaction that that either reduces negative externalities or or increases positive externalities, right? And so if we are going to speed up these systems, we need better ways of taking all of that extra work that we can do to try to evaluate those positive and negative externalities and tie them directly to these, these transactions themselves, right? Another example of this, I was talking about positive externalities. So like the, the value of land to an ecosystem, a negative externality version of this is if you're trying to understand what your carbon footprint is um, as you're, you're making some sort of a business decision and say you want to, you want to reduce the emissions associated with your operation, um, if it takes you a year to run through your carbon accounting for your business, and at the end of that entire auditing process, you have one snapshot of what our emissions are um, for this business and also maybe for the products that we're selling. And then your customer uses your numbers in order to do their own carbon accounting, and it takes them a year. 
And then their customer uses those numbers. Every step down the value chain takes another year for the information to flow through that company, right? And so the transition from making this manual to making this computable really means that we should be able to increase the the velocity of externality information transfer through the value chain by orders of magnitude, right? So can we, rather than moving information about the carbon emissions intensity of my products through a value chain in years, can we speed that up to move that information in minutes? So are you using automation and computation interchangeably in that description? Because some of it sounds like it's an automation process. And obviously, computers are great for automating. And maybe I'm making... I And really, I'm just like trying to... You know, I'm trying to like get into your brain and understand, you know, when is something an automation process? When is something a computation process? When are those two things the same? And when are they different? Yeah, so so computation is modeling. So computation is just when you're you're manipulating information. And automation is when you're taking that information and making decisions based on it. So the reason that it's important to have computable money is that we we have the information that we need where it needs to be there. So if we want to buy from the supplier that has lower carbon emissions associated with those products, we need to know what the carbon emissions are from supplier A versus supplier B if we buy a product from them. So that's computation. The where compute where 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 automation factors into that is the actual decision to buy a versus B. You can code a decision and you can replicate that decision over and over again based on a, a criteria that you decide upon as a business owner, for instance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So computation is sort of table stakes for for doing this. And you could compute like having having the, the computation element to this in order to, to allow you to just track how. Um, negative externalities like carbon emissions or positive externalities like flow through an economy. That's what you just need to create the situational awareness um, in it, the, like necessary to empower people to make either automatic decisions, so like automated decisions, or even manual decisions just about um, how they're how they're going to reduce their emissions. Yeah, cool. Um, thank you. Okay, so now I think we should move into the dialogue about I, I think we've been sort of framing out this this large evolving discipline of GHG accounting. We have a bit of a framework for thinking about the role of web 3 and how that that is going to actualize this accounting into the real economy. Now I'd like to ground that into the Filecoin perspective around, you know, your role in helping Filecoin, uh, you know, I think as a protocol and protocol labs as a business and maybe the whole ecosystem be thinking about how to do um, transparent, rigorous offsetting as a part of your operations and, you know, and how, how is that going? Um, and what is your thesis? And, you know, this is sort of, we've had a dialogue and specifically I want to start digging into permanence and your assumptions. And, and so 
What is your current thesis about the most responsible way that you're understanding based on everything that you're learning to make offsetting decisions given your domain and context at Filecoin? Right. So Filecoin Green has two different goals like you you were, were sort of hinting at. One of the goals is to make Filecoin itself verifiably sustainable. And the other is to build this informational infrastructure that's necessary to decarbonize the, the rest of Web3 and ultimately other industries, right? So we want to build tools that work in the context of Filecoin and are generalizable beyond that. And we want to you know work with as many partners as we can to um, to come up with a, a you know decentralized sort of set of composable interlocking systems that really like fulfill that mission. And so, with Filecoin itself, the majority of emissions come from electricity use, from storing data, and proving that that data is stored over time. And so, the way we've been approaching this is trying to apply um, principles from um, from a bunch of different organizations, right? So, so things like the, the Oxford offsetting principles and the science-based targets initiative are very, very clear that when you want to get to net zero, you should not just estimate your emissions and jump directly to offsets, right? You should try to be as granular as possible in understanding what your emissions are from different pieces of your business and trying to reduce those emissions um, before you you jump to to offsetting what, whatever you can't reduce, right? And so the way we've gone about that with Filecoin itself is looking node by node at the Filecoin network, collecting all of the information that we can get from those different nodes on what their energy use is, looking at how much data they are storing on the Filecoin chain or on the Filecoin network and using that to estimate what their energy use is over time and then connecting that energy use to renewable energy markets. So rather than using offsets node by node, we've really been going to electricity use. Right. You've right. been using yeah, RECs. Exactly. Yeah. And, and but using all that to, to reduce carbon. Right. Educate me on this if I'm wrong, but my assumption would be even if you were to sort of like offset 100% of your energy with RECs, you would still then at the end of all of that, if you know, if we were sort of being honest about it, we would also have a carbon removal remainder that needs to be taken care of, right? Yeah, and you're, you're talking about like the, the life cycle analysis going into like a wind turbine or something. There's no energy that doesn't have some carbon associated with its life cycle. Yeah, that's kind of what. Yeah, 100%. That I'm aware of. (laughs) Unless you're doing some cool biochar pyrolysis, like weird, probably enormously inefficient, but uh, except for the fact that it sort of sequesters carbon or something as a... You know, and the energy is just a co-benefit. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. So, so it's totally true. And I think like another another piece of that is the scope through emissions that go into the hardware itself. And yeah. so, 
both to to manufacture the hardware and the embodied emissions in that, and then you know transportation and like all the other costs associated with actually putting together a data center. So yeah, are you also thinking of your sort of like business operations? Obviously, business operations, flights, office space, all of these sorts of things. Are you would you include those in your scope one or your scope two as a business focused on a protocol? Just curious. Yeah, I mean, so the the general way to do that, uh, you know, especially if you're you're accounting for like you know employee travel and stuff, that would tend to be in scope three. But it, like your your point is totally true, right? That like even if we're just looking at decarbonizing scope two emissions, so like emissions due to electricity use, um, there's this this huge set of emissions associated with scope three that are like not accounted for in that, and. So what we are trying to work through and like some of our conversations have been like trying to help me think through this, right? Are what sort of incentives should we work on for the Filecoin network in order to verifiably decarbonize the emissions that aren't just associated with electricity use, right? So like even if, you know, even if 80 or 90% of the emissions from Filecoin are associated with electricity use and we have we have really good systems for that. We're really proud of the systems that we have for um verifiably decarbonizing electricity and um making that information publicly available, right? So like actually publishing the the recs, which again, like coming from a uh, you know, just sort of general engineering background, right? That really should be table stakes, right? If you claim that you're decarbonizing your electricity use by buying solar or wind or something, um, you should just be upfront, right? About like, where specifically are we buying solar from? How much solar did we buy? When was it produced? All of that. But mind bogglingly, that's, that's not the standard in the industry right now is people just make these claims and they sort of roll up all of these energy purchases into some glossy PDF where they say, we bought this amount of energy over this, you know, this time period, which is generally as long as it's like gloss. A year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think the gloss, you know, gets you pretty far, right? <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, so we're doing that to account for, you know, something like 80 or 90% of the emissions associated with the Falcon network. But like you're totally right, right? There's there's this extra set of emissions that are associated with all sorts of other things, like producing the wind turbine or producing the hard drive that is going to be storing data on Filecoin. And that's what we're trying to work through is what are the right incentives that we should set up there. And so I think that's some of the some of the conversations that we've been having, right, are about things like the properties that a good carbon offset should have, right? And so we're looking at things like permanence. And I wanted to talk through more and get your take on what types of claims should we be making? And if we buy nature-based carbon offsets and say, okay, the aluminum that went into this hard drive rack has emissions associated with that, and we are going to buy nature-based carbon offsets in order to offset those emissions, right? Because generally, in order to, to make aluminum, um, it, it's very hard to get decarbonized aluminum, right? So we need to do something in order to reduce those emissions if we want to be net zero. So if we went with Regen to do that, like how should we think about permanence associated with those emissions and you know purchasing carbon offsets from a network like that? 
Yeah. And I think, um, yes, that's this is going to be a fun conversation. So I think I have been known to harangue the, <laughs> uh, on usually on Twitter, the sort of like direct air capture approach in which permanence is considered the primary driver of value um, and sort of say, no, I don't think that that's right. But before digging into that, I actually think it would be really probably valuable for our listeners for you to explain from your perspective, what is as a purchaser, as somebody who's doing offsetting and trying to sort of like defend like make and defend a reasonable claim and be a responsible business um, that is doing at least its part and maybe more to decarbonize the economy. What is attractive to you about focusing on permanence above all else, essentially, as the primary quality identifier for carbon credits when you need to make an offset purchase? Yeah. I think that if you are a business and you make a claim that we are carbon neutral or this activity or this product is carbon neutral because we bought offsets, what people hear is, okay, because they bought this offset, the emissions associated with you know, this product are negated essentially for all time going forward right and like i always sometimes i get on a on a flight and they announce at the beginning of the flight that this flight is carbon neutral and i i want to like smash my head against a wall um because you know they're gonna <laughs> they're buying a bunch of offsets they're generally most airlines are buying pretty cheap offsets that uh, and they're probably not even differentiating between is it like a renewable energy mm -hmm. offset right is yeah. it a avoided emissions deforestation, uh, like avoided deforestation, forest conservation offset? Is it, right. you know, what is it that that is the actual claim? So that's sort of, so you're sort of saying like within that wild west of like, who is making what claim and what standing do they have in order to sort of be marketing at that yeah. stage? Um, and, and what you're saying is, from your perspective, what you want Filecoin to be able to do is to say that this is permanently, it's a, as if this emission never happened. Yeah. And I, I think I think that the two really key characteristics there are like durability or permanence and additionality, right? So it's like we did something with this offset. When, when people hear this product is carbon neutral, what they they know emissions are happening as a result of that product, right? Maybe that's file storage. Maybe that's taking a flight. Maybe that's some other product. So they know there are direct emissions occurring. And then they say, okay, this is coupled with some offset. And because it's coupled with that offset, the emissions profile of the atmosphere for all time going forward is going to be just like we didn't have those direct emissions. Right. So that's why that's why like both the durability and the additionality are, I think, really key in how people understand those claims as being made. OK, I think that that's probably I can't speak for other people, <laughs> so I don't know what people are thinking when they. But that seems that that seems logical, that that's sort of a common understanding or misunderstanding. 
um, you know, and I guess to to further build that out, probably mostly what's happening is there's maybe a 25 or 30 year permanence guarantee on whatever carbon credit was purchased. So really what's being that they have offset that emission for a period of time in which after which there's no guarantees it could be that we just don't know after that there could be a land use change or the project cycle could change or something else sometimes it's 100 years um sometimes you know maybe longer um does that is that accurate tracking to you know how you'd think about it so that's not good enough that the that that like that the length of time is an important value vector and maybe should be reported as part of yeah. like maybe that's maybe what you're really saying is hey we'd I'd actually prefer for there to be a, a time unit associated with all claims. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's three different like timescales and levels of interpretation that are really important. I think the the long term one. And the one that is has sort of like the least level of of sort of granularity associated with it is when you communicate to some member of the public that this thing is carbon neutral, you know, and it's and it's not a detailed report. It's just like, you know, they glance at it and move on. Right. I think how they interpret that is forever. It will be as though this emission didn't happen. Right. And so that's why, like, that actually does align with, like, durable carbon removals, right? If you just, like, tell someone this is, this is carbon neutral and they think, oh, that means, that means forever, um, like, so that's, that's one level. And that's sort of a, a, like, public communications level. Then I think the, the next level is you have a glossy PDF, but not necessarily, like, you know, granular DMRV. Um, and the glossy PDF version is, okay, we are, you know, as some, as some like large corporate, we are offsetting our historical carbon emissions, right? And so like maybe they do an analysis that shows, okay, like here are our emissions over time, here are offsets that we've purchased, and you may actually disclose the amount of, of like time um, that's like contractually associated with those um, those offsets, right? So maybe maybe they do buy 25-year offsets or 50-year offsets or 100-year offsets. And, you know, they like should, and as far as I know, frequently do report the time period over which they are like offsetting those emissions. And like the implication is if this, com- if, if this company is still around in 100 years and they're still, you know, making claims about having offset their historical emissions, they should be upfront about you know, renewing those contracts after they they lapse initially. Does that does that kind of make sense? Like if you if you are like making if you are reporting about like the integrated emissions minus offsets of some some company or like entity over time, like you should be straightforward about like the length of those contracts, right? And I think I think some some are and some aren't. And then the 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 like third like more granular shorter question. time scale part of this yeah question from that accounting perspective ghg accounting perspective does that mean that you know if, if say i want to have a thousand year 
green light, can I just go buy the same ton a thousand times? No, I mean, if it was a one-year ton, I could just buy it a thousand times and I'd be good to go from that. I think it's, there's a strange like time discount. Um, there's, there's like a very strange accounting problem here that, yeah. Anyway, is that a naive and appropriate, but but appropriate way to deal with that problem? Just be like, okay, so it's 30. So yeah, I bought some carbon credits with 30 year permanence guarantee. You know, um, what I wanted really was a hundred year sort of guarantee because that's what we're going to base our sort of like metrics and our claims and whatever. Um, we'll renew it at the end of that or whatever. So I'm going to buy, you know, three and a half of these or whatever. Yes. So people have developed like ton year accounting strategies to try to try to solve that and say okay we can't guarantee that this offset is going to be good for you know some length of time so we're going to just offset more carbon over the next year or 5 years or 10 years and that's going to in some in some way be equivalent to offsetting a lower amount of carbon over a longer time period right and I think that's really I think that's really dangerous for two reasons. One is that if what we're interested in is the concentration of carbon dioxide going like decades into the future, obviously like offsetting 10 tons now versus 1 ton over, you know, 10 years is is going to like interact with the atmosphere differently. Right? So that's a problem. And then I think the second problem is that if you have I think like a shorter period contract versus a longer period contract like interacts with additionality differently right like if you if you are if 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 there's like any i think i think this comes down to like exactly how your methodology works right but if you are removing a ton and your methodology is really really solid and you like really believe it if you remove like 10 tons this year, it's going to be 10 times as effective, right? But if you remove one ton over a longer time period, I think like the the question is like, how does that ultimately ladder up into like a set of claims people are making distributed across the world over long, over long, like over long periods of time, right? And like, I think that trying to draw that equivalence between amount and time and saying there's like some trade-off between them that you can establish just like doesn't make that much sense when you actually try to bring it back to what is the carbon profile going to look like over time going out into the future. Okay. So now I want to ask a question. What is the world that you would like to be creating with Filecoin? And how is that um, and how do the carbon credits that you purchase either build that world or not build that world? And how does that relate to this fairly abstract set of accounting questions, which I, I'm not sure I entirely, uh, you know, sort of like I, I want to set that aside. It's super abstract. And my guess is with the accounting questions that you have a more solid understanding of what the general um, you you have a, you're you're reflecting more of the consensus reality around carbon markets than I would be, but I think that most of that is crazy, and it sounds I, I'm I'm sort of like 
that doesn't sound like the right approach to systemic carbon accounting to me. Something about it. it like there's yep. there's elements that I fully resonate with, right? Where we want to be very specific about who's saying what about where, what the claim is, all of that. So it's like there's these set of first principles, 100% on board. But then there's there's sort of like the way in which the industry has abstracted and created terms such as additionality and permanence and what a carbon credit claim means to some people versus other people and like the contracts behind that and all that other stuff seems to sort of like get itself, I would say it's getting itself into an untenable, like unworkable cul-de-sac of maybe of a giant carbon nothing burger <laughs> that, that I'm very skeptical that like a thousand year, like the thousand, like that just like, oh, the way to fix that nothing burger is to make a magical thousand year carbon credit with direct air capture. I guess I'm skeptical of that being the conclusion. And I would tend to sort of like back back out of that and say, if we were to design from first principles, a global carbon accounting system that puts the appropriate pricing and has the appropriate real-time data mechanisms to do so, we can think of a whole, a whole carbon cycle, we can think of emissions, we can think of the storage, and we can think of sequestration as basically the three different phases of the life cycle of a, of a ton of carbon. And we can assign value to each of those actions. Like we can assign a removal value and a storage value, and we can account for those things over time. And then we can sort of like more intelligently and easily bring that onto our balance sheet, which I think maybe accomplishes what you're talking about in a way in which we would sort of like have carbon leases, basically, where you're like paying for a guarantee of carbon storage for some period of time that relates to your business planning and, you know, and the, the larger global nested jurisdictional accounting system and other things. So I just, you don't actually have to answer the, what's the world you guys want to create? Although maybe that's a nice thing to answer, right? Like what's the actual vision of what Filecoin is helping create that doesn't exist now that having a thousand year ton in your carbon portfolio helps create? So the world that we want to create is one in which we have thriving ecosystems. And when people interact with, with Filecoin, there are more positive externalities than negative externalities. Cool. So right? question, does yeah. a direct air capture credit in any way correlate with thriving ecosystems in your mind so i think there are i think the the part of that that you are thinking of is is co-benefits right and things what's well, the ecosystem like, thriving but, but let me just yeah. say it is my as an ecologist yeah. um global warming does not negatively impact ecological health global warming um, negatively impacts human health and there are other human activities such as microplastics, toxins, ozone, environmental degradation, those all are impacting ecological health. But an increase in atmospheric carbon per se is much more to do, from my perspective, with sort of like preserving 
the health and wellness of human society than it is preserving the health and wellness of the biosphere per per se, right? All things being equal, you know, it's really environmental degradation that's causing the the like biodiversity collapse, not an increase in atmospheric carbon. One of my favorite points is that the planet is going to be fine. People talk about saving the planet, but the the planet's going to be all right. It's it's uh, it's planet people and everyone living on the planet that are, are going to have issues. Yeah, way bigger yeah. atmospheric carbon than this. <laughs> well, so the I, I mean, I think like that's that's true, and it's not right. Like um, the direct effects of having an increase in um, CO2 emissions in the atmosphere are are things like, you know, 70 or 80% of the kelp off the coast of California sure. dying. Ocean is definitely the big ocean systems, ocean acidification, um, and imbalances. Sure. I mean, okay. Yeah. So and and yeah, and and you know, true. coral reefs, you know, there's there's a ton of impacts of heat waves on the natural world right that are a pretty direct result of of co2 emissions true true sorry and droughts and um so it it will throw the climate into uh a certain amount of um uh yeah for sure there are chaos and there in there are there are big environmental outcomes that are important. I guess I'm very skeptical, though, that the linear relationship, the linear cause and effect relation, I'm incredibly skeptical of the linear cause and effect relationship between a thousand year ton direct air capture. To me, direct air capture is a giant waste of money. I see, I it seems because because we can, we because we're solving durability and permanence, with technology instead of with land tenure and stewardship. Yeah. Like, like it, there's no way out of this. And I think this gets to the, the heart of the dialogue. There is no way out of this in which we don't actually solve the fundamental social, cultural, and economic challenges, which are driving environmental degradation and other things. Like we can't actually fix that with a direct air capture machine. And by the time we scale direct air capture, to a point where it's making any kind of significant dent in atmospheric carbon, you know, I think, I fear, we're already too late. We've sort of like gone over the cliff. Although it's hard and challenging and we don't have any guarantees and we can't make guarantees about it because we didn't just pull atmospheric carbon and pump it into the Earth's crust or something like that. So we don't have the same kind of hard guarantees that I think sort of like the engineer mind wants to sort of like, or, or the compute mind where we're, where we're like, I want a solid guarantee. So that's what we're going for. We can't give those guarantees with like land stewardship based approaches in the same ironclad way. Although I was sort of joking with you that, you know, you can't stop me from pumping that, you know, carbon back up and lighting it on fire if I want to. Like, you know, so because people are saying like, oh, you can't stop somebody someday project may stop being funded and maybe those trees will get chopped down or someday maybe there'll be a drought and the the soil will emit the carbon that was sequestered through the land practices. But I, I just like the counterfactual is you can't stop me from it blowing up your direct air capture thing and, and lighting all of the carbon on fire either. Right. So no matter what, we get ourselves into a 
scenario in which human behavior is actually at the core of what we're talking about, right? And and you know, and and incentives to change that behavior and modify that behavior so that it is re-rooted in ecological stewardship fundamentally, at least from my perspective, that's really, that's like, that's the goal, right? I think that's all of our North Stars. And I don't think there's any way to do that. And like, and look, disclaimer, I'm going hard against DAC, but if people want to do DAC, that's awesome. I just, I'm sick of the DAC crowd beating up on the, you know, on the natural climate solutions crowd because I think it's cr- crazy, basically. <laughs> Makes me crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think I want to I wanna pull a few different pieces of that apart, right? right. Yeah. I think that I think that in order to get to the type of world I want to live in, which is a world that is much more just in which local communities don't have to deal with pollution and environmental degradation caused by these like giant fossil fuel companies um, coming in and, you know, directly polluting their area, doing like releasing, you know, benzene into the air, like all of these different things. Like, I totally agree. A world in which we have exactly the same fossil fuel infrastructure that we do now, but we compensate for that with direct air capture is not a world that I want to live in. I think that part what of what would keep that what what keeps that from happening like so just just to say like if yeah. if the if the amazing brilliant minds of the frontier fund and filecoin and everybody's like oh we we're gigabrain and we're thinking about this problem and we prefer permanence so we're going to put a thousand dollar ton price tag and we're going to fund the shit out of DAC what in what way does that not end up in that scenario that you're just noting you don't want? So I think what you are arguing for, and I agree, is that we need to increase the funding for things other than carbon markets that bring us closer to that world, right? And so... But I think I'm also arguing for the holistic value of context-specific living carbon being far, 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 far above the relative value of permanence guarantees or even additionality. Like there is a thing, there's a state of living carbon, right? And that and living carbon expresses itself in uh, the Amazon rainforest or in the boreal tundra and boreal systems or in deciduous forests or in enormously deep soil carbon that can be grown or it can be shrunk. All of that living carbon reserve, the terrestrial carbon reserve, has the easy ability to to metabolize and incorporate between marine and terrestrial systems we can easily draw down all of the anthropogenic carbon into those systems. There, it has the capacity. This is like a scientific reality. Now, the question is, do we have the management capacity to keep it there, right? That's the, that, to me, that's the question. I know that WRI and other people are like, no, no, we don't have necessarily the ability to sequester all of the anthropogenic carbon that's been emitted into living systems. But 
Uh, you know, and we, so we could have a side debate about that. Can we only do 60%? Can we only do 80%? Could we do 100%? I guess I'm a maximalist in living carbon, right? So I do agree that we should be valuing co-benefits um, because it does all these other things. It reduces flood runoff. It has hydronic cooling effect. Like, like how much of, of global warming is being driven by habitat destruction? Probably a lot more than is currently accounted for by IPCC models. Um, but we can unitize and think about the value of carbon as, you know, carbon is life. Car living carbon is very valuable. So that's, I'll get off my soapbox for a second. You've got, you've got something to say. <laughs> So I, I think yeah a few a few elements to that right if you if you look at the uh, the planetary boundaries framework right there are these nine different variables that we can measure about the health of the planet and we can set ranges for those variables and we can say okay some of these variables are within a stable range some of them are in an unstable range and some of these variables like vastly exceed the unstable range and and our planet is not going to be sustainable the natural systems that we rely on as a civilization are not going to be sustainable if these variables stay outside that range right and <laughs> i think the impression that most people would have is that of the planetary boundaries the one that's being exceeded the most is carbon but that's that's not true at not all not even right? close to true. so so carbon markets get a lot of attention right because the like public perception is that co2 is where we've sort of the most public exceeded perception is wrongfully that climate change is actually the big problem right and it in it's it's a symptom of a bigger problem <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which we could name probably much more forcefully for for most people. And it's you know, eco well, ecological collapse and degradation. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, like extinction, um, extinction rates and phosphorus and nitrogen flows are the three that are are like in the worst zone, right? And so um those are all directly related to land use. I I do I do think um ecological like like extinction um is closely tied to climate change in a lot of environments right so like you do have heat waves that kill off disproportionate numbers of like insects and birds right but that, then like, on the other hand the, those heat waves are driven by environmental degradation and so 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 there's yeah. a more direct relationship if you're doing ecological restoration afforestation reforestation conservation and the the sort of like biodiversity preservation than like setting up a DAC system in Canada or something like that. And anyway, right. so that's the, there is like a direct opportunity to intervene there. And yes, right. the permanence might be less, but it right. will get, it's way more bang for your buck. <laughs> so the issues that are tied to all of that, right? The the issues that are tied to ecosystem collapse have more to have, have most directly to do with land use, right? So like correct. We need to, I think what you are arguing for and what I would absolutely agree with is that we need to change globally how we use land and devote more of it to preserving the natural world. Correct. And, and things and, like the half earth I've, movement view, are, are like taking that head on, right? And I view DAC as a threat to that as a as a focus to, that we actually get enough attention to to focus on because i see people putting their budgets 
into DAC instead of putting their budgets into the change of land use to fund it. So it is the most criminally underfunded thing in the climate movement. It's like, it's ridiculous, like how much DAC has gotten funded over the last five years versus how much natural climate solutions are getting funded. It's just absurd. It's crazy. I, I saw a graph. I can't remember the numbers, but it was like, you know, it was like, it was insane. It was orders of magnitude more funding was going to to technological carbon sequestration than natural carbon sequestration solutions. And I I totally agree. Like you're not going to um technology your way out of ecosystem collapse unless you change how we use land on like a planetary scale, right? But I think that saying that we can shift that or solve that by selling carbon credits that have low permanence is not necessarily the way to fix that, right? Like the way that- I don't know if I disagree. I kind of disagree with that. So if you're changing, so land use decisions, land, land use decisions get made for economic reasons. Yeah. If you change the economic reality for a land steward in such a way as they're committing to a long-term shift of their land practices, whether that's to conserve a forest or to shift to regenerative agriculture or whatever it is, that makes the land use change, right? right. So then the land use change has just been made and and for a you know, and for a generation, essentially. I mean, most of these agreements are generational, right? Maybe we can get into longer ones, but this is the generation we have. This is the moment of action we need. So it does actually meaningfully radically impact the economics for land stewards in such a way as they will change their land use behavior. And, you know, as a planet, we can radically shift our land use. I mean, I think that those, those, I think them's the facts right? That, that people do accept money to change their land use behavior. And that there are quantifiable and rigorous carbon outcomes that that can be valued and can, you know, in addition to other things, which we could also value, which is great. And Region Network's very excited about those other dimensions as well, of course. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I just push back on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it comes down to the question of what sort of guarantees do you need around that claim in land that that change in land use in order to license someone else to emit a ton of carbon? Right. right. Like that the guarantees are definitely going to be out there for you know a thousand years. Right. And I think that that unfortunately there have been, you know, well, first off, I think a thousand years is probably not the right time frame as much as I like it. Um, I think we probably should be thinking of a generation in terms of living systems, at least to start, because you need to acculturate people and get them into things. I also think, you know, we're going to need to follow on, right? So so I guess I'm thinking of this as like, there's no way to get this done and dusted. This is going to, we're going to have to re-up this and there's going to have to be an annual stock take and there's going to have to be an adjustment of the value of carbon and companies and nation states and individuals are going to have to be continually engaging in a reaccounting of the carbon cycle 
I t- kind of like take that for granted, like that, that we're going to have to be doing that, like global accounting. It's like, it's going to be ca- tax season <laughs> for everybody, you know, and then we're going to have to re-up land tenure. But, but if there's success, right, if, if you have projects in which there are, su- there's success, the success breeds success, and there will be more and more projects, and there will be more and more also cultural acceptance of the value of the unitization and the value of those you know, more healthy living systems and the transformation of land use. Right. And clearly like that, that's what we need. Right. I, the, the question is, I mean, so I think, I think it was Herbert Hoover was like addressing Congress in the, in the twenties or thirties or, or something. Um, and was talking about, about water rights in the West and said, um, this is uh, so, something to the effect of like this agreement that we're making now is going to last for however many decades. And we're going to have to trust to the wisdom of, you know, the, the, our, our grandkids generation to uh, come back to this problem. Right. And like readdress, re- readdress this issue that we're like solving today. Right. And like now, <laughs> now that the, the Colorado river is drying up, we're having these like huge issues, right. in all of these Western States around, around water rights. And I think that the, the danger, right. Is in setting up a bunch of contracts that we know in a generation are going to expire. And there is no individual with the responsibility of re-upping those contracts Right. So like the issue is like, if you have a company and that company buys a bunch of these contracts, everyone says, oh, this company is doing a very good job being carbon neutral. And then in a generation, that company has gone out of business and you would expect them in the framework that you're suggesting to um, account for their historical carbon use and account for the contracts that have expired by that time and like re Why, if they've gone out of business, they're no longer producing emissions. Why, well, why? But, but if they've gone out of business, the, the emissions that they produced decades ago are still in the air, right? And so you could, the, the, oh, but the they promise- But they have accounting, they should have been doing ongoing offsetting since then, right? So that doesn't, doesn't seem to me that that, well, I mean, I kind of want to push back. I think expire, what right? you're explaining so like, is, yeah. issues with carbon accounting i don't see in any way that dac gets out of this there's no, no way in which DAC, that, right? i don't see it because well unless well, in, unless in you Iraq. don't care that there's a giant like military industrial complex sized dac system to remove carbon and use energy to remove carbon at the same like the in breath and out breath of a giant globe-spanning industrial system that, because, because how are you going to keep that from happening? You still have to, over time, humans have to adaptively manage and make policy and decision-making in order to keep that from being the outcome. So either way, either scenario, like if we go heavy into DAC or we go heavy into natural carbon solutions, you're in a scenario in which there is the potential of disaster in which future generations need to be involved in making good decisions. They're, they're, like, there's no way out of that. We, we can't get away from that, I don't think. No, clearly. But we can, we can set the default decision to be that the carbon continues to be sequestered chemically rather than the default decision to be that we're going to have to 
put a lot of political capital in, you know, a generation or two generations time into re-upping those contracts. Why is that better? Convince me that that's better. That seems worse. We have to, if we take for granted that we have to solve land use. Yeah. And we're going to have to expend capital, political capital, financial capital, and incentivize and, and reformat society. We, we, like we, we both yeah. agree that that has to happen. There's no way out of this without that happening. Yeah. But maybe we need to find a way to do that that doesn't involve licensing people to put extra tons of CO2 into the atmosphere that are definitely going to be there for many generations. So this is the carbon credits as a license to pollute argument. But how does DAC not do that, number one? So DAC doesn't solve land use, but it does solve taking carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it in a way that is chemically inert so that the default option is that it stays out of the atmosphere. And maybe if we are going to be selling offset products, which are commonly understood as they are matched to emissions and the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere from now until forever is going to be the same as if I didn't make those emissions. Maybe the way to solve land use is not to tie it with those sorts of instruments. Maybe the way to solve land use is to use other mechanisms, which I think there are other mechanisms out there, right? And like, we should I be working very on little attention. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I've always been skeptical of, I mean, but, but I think there's a couple differences is like, yeah. one, I, I firmly believe the science supports me in drawdown right? Um, I think it's like in the book drawdown, I think they say 600, it's um, 630 gigatons of the thousand gigatons that need to be sequestered over the next, you know, 30 years or so can all be accomplished through land. Um, I believe that's under reporting, Um, but that's my belief. And and there's science to support that belief, but they did a very rigorous, like peer-reviewed process to come up with that number. So, Maybe we can find other financial capital to do what you're talking about. I don't see it. Who's going to put it in? Who who's going to put you know as imperfect as living carbon is because of its because of its volatility, right? Um, however, I, I also want to say that that doesn't need to be that way. Like you can use biochar, you can use. Um, enhanced rock weathering, you could just be harvesting 10% of all of the, you could be low grading biomass out of the great Eastern woodland at 10%, increasing ecological health and just stacking those logs up into a giant tower that would take a thousand years to break down. You could be burying it in the ocean and it would take 5,000 years to break down. You could you can use photosynthetic generated biomass to and make it chemically inert in many different ways that is cheaper and more aligned with land use than DAC ever will be, right? And th- yeah, those well, are all and, part of the nature carbon solution bucket, right? That's all that's all part and parcel. Do, do you count like Bex as part of that too? So so Bex being like bioenergy with a carbon capture and storage in which you are 
uh, growing trees and burning them to produce energy and then taking the the emissions from that and sequestering them which is which is like it's it's similar to like CCS but it's because you're you're taking trees it, it ends up being carbon negative um but it's like I mean it's the, the sort of solution that you're like talking about is, like is, it, is it a pyrolysis system pyrolysis based system for or you're just piping the smokestack through like an algae system or you're doing some other yeah, yeah I mean, it's, broadly I it's, speaking yes like the okay. integration of because land use includes food fuel fiber pharmacy all of the different uses and so to the degree to which your your leverage in, you know and there's all sorts of things where if you get too linear we may end up with a system in which you know biomass fuel is very scary or biomass fuel could be really inspiring and epic and decentralize energy systems and create durable inert carbon sources as part of a living and human land use system right that's all part and parcel and th and that's where most of the most durable solutions are however there's like a spectrum right and so it's i think it, the markets are perfectly equipped to just simply discount the like permanence guarantees and have that be part of the pricing that's taking place you know so i guess i'm not ready to you know, and it, I'm not ready to give up on the the living carbon, the natural carbon solutions. I think they, you know, I think we need to be precise about the guarantees we're making and the claims that we're making. But yeah. I think they're probably better than DAC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So two different things. I think if you look at the global system at scale, you are totally right that we can and should find land use changes which are going to sequester carbon, and we should incentivize those. And if we can do that at scale, it's going to make a huge impact. Right. I think where that then collides with the way carbon accounting is done now is that for that plan to be effective and to convince me that that's going to be effective going out into the future, that has to be done collectively. The way carbon accounting is done now is individualized at the level of individual companies, individual people, individual industries. Well, people and are so, making net zero. I mean, there is a sort of collective. I mean, there is a, a Paris Agreement and a net zero pledge and science-based targets that are sort of like generating a, a, a communal uh, field of commitment. So commitments. So it is requiring individuals and companies to say yes, but then there's regulatory like ESG accounting frameworks and other things that are sort of starting to add layers of us doing it together instead of just individually, right? Is right. maybe that's not enough. So, yet, right? so right. So if you if you look at a spectrum, and on one end of the spectrum is like Delton Chen's global carbon reward, where it really is this like global collective effort. And on the other end of the spectrum is individual consumers buying carbon credits. Mm -hmm. I am convinced, right, that on the collective end of the spectrum changing global land use policies is going to get us where we need to go in terms of carbon drawdown. 
I'm also convinced that on the individual end of the spectrum, if everyone buys truly durable permanent carbon removals, that you know, using using something like like DAC, um, that that will also get us where we need to go in terms of the CO2 profile of the atmosphere going forward over time. And I am like a third thing I'm convinced of is that land use policies solved at a collective level are going to have a huge amount of other co-benefits, right? That like DAC is not going to have. You think but, that you have hope that those will be solved at the policy level? I guess in the meantime, I, I wouldn't say that we shouldn't do that. We should. But in the meantime, what is the downside to people, to individuals and companies investing in less durable but still extremely important land use changes through carbon market mechanisms? Why is that bad? The risk is that they buy a offset that has some relatively short term maybe it's maybe it's 20 years and then they emit a bunch of carbon they get public accolades for being carbon neutral and then after that contract is up the carbon stays in the atmosphere but can't we easily and- solve that risk just by the information technology system that we're all designing together in web3 in which in 20 years we would just like have a little alarm that sort of like springs up and says this company or individual is no longer carbon negative because the term of their carbon agreement was up and they didn't renew it. I mean, can't can't is, that seems like a pretty simple problem to solve? Yeah, no, I I mean we need that right, and we isn't that a lot easier than building a giant DAC machine? It's just in I terms mean, of like an engineering challenge, isn't I, like I, I guess this is where I get back to like my confusion about <laughs> well why why can't we do both sure as long as we do do both but 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 the simplicity of that like ding-a-ling-a-ling you need to re-up you're no longer carbon neutral versus a giant DAC industry along with this really illustrative and beautiful dialogue we just had in which though i think you were sort of saying like, no, there really isn't a place for valuing, you know, nature-based carbon solutions for the following reasons. And then at the end, I'm sort of like, well, but but at the end of the day, that one problem, like we could actually solve that problem with Web3 technology, right? Like we can bake that in to credit union units. That's actually pretty easy, comparatively speaking. So we can dance across this like collective action, individual action divide with a pretty like, you know, nodal acupuncture intervention of a little just like feature tweak, right? Am I am I off on that? Well, and I think that comes back to the the transparency stuff we were talking about at the beginning, right? Is that whether you're using nature-based offsets that are web3 native or if you're using nature-based offsets that are in, you know, sold in more traditional markets, like we need to build better mechanisms to do what you just described, right? We need to show people if you're making some claim, right? Where you're saying we released this, this amount of carbon and we are matching that to some other action that's taking place. And like, maybe that's land use changes. Um, We need to 
not just have this this glossy PDF saying this is how many tons we sequestered, but we need to actually like in granular verifiable detail relate those two actions to each other, right? And so I'm I'm totally on board with right like building um, better tools to make that legible, and part of that is just is the methodology that you're using for this offset good, and the other part is. Um, you know, stuff like you just talked about, right? Like uh, some sort of alarm bell that goes off and says, you know, this this offset that you bought um, or this offset that this this person bought, this entity bought, right? That they made some claim based on isn't, isn't good anymore because the contract is up. Totally. And that all seems like tractable, I guess. I am, I mean, I'm, I'm worried that in 30 or 50 years that leads to this like, diagram showing all of these like orphaned expired co2 contracts right like i'm imagining this pie chart well but by then by then maybe it doesn't matter because we've shifted into i mean look the carbon crediting system is probably not long for this world you know if, if if it works for 10 years and it actually gets us to carbon negative emissions we'll be in great shape right but there has to be another generation that is looking significantly more like the carbon reward and significantly less like the current carbon markets. Otherwise, we're just probably not going to make it, right? So, so you know, and I'd always try to keep our, in terms of our design perspective, it's really like looking through carbon markets. What what does what the market currently needs, what is the same between what the market currently needs to function and what the future apparatus of the internalization of ecological health and carbon cycle integrity into our economy, what is the same between now and in 10 years? Those are the things to work on, right? That's the thing. That's our work right now. Yeah. And I I 100% agree with that, right? Is like there are DMRV practices that are, you know, that, that you're working on, right? And that, that other folks are working on that, are necessary for taking existing carbon markets and upgrading them and also we're going to be necessary to any system that works in 50 or 100 years and like there's a lot of work to do at that intersection between the present and future and like that is that is where we need to focus yeah um i think that's a that's a nice place to start um wrapping um um when so when are you guys going to fill your portfolio with uh natural climate solution credits <laughs> it's a good question <laughs> um yeah no this has been super helpful for me to understand a little bit deeper about you know where you're coming from and how you're thinking about it and and maybe like you as a representative because i think there's a lot of smart people who are thinking similarly um and then there's like me <laughs> And maybe some other heretics out there as well, Um, um, because clearly natural climate solutions do have a fairly large uh, community of practice, which which may broadly agree with some of my my positions on this. Um, Yeah, so this has been fascinating. I hope it's been as fun for the viewers as it has been for you and I to sort of like walk through this dialogue and and sort of drill into another level of, uh, of depth. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a pleasure talking to you as always. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, Alan. Well, um, looking forward to uh, seeing you before long and um, yeah, um, let's, uh, let's connect again soon. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks, Jerry.